My name is Scott Challoner, and you are listening to the Leaders' Council podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. Now, as regular listeners of this programme will know very well, part of our mission here at the Leaders' Council is to bring you a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership and current affairs. And to this end, we're joined on today's programme by published author and recipient of multiple awards for services to the community, Dame Claudine Dubry. Um, Claudine, very warm welcome to yourself today. And by all means, thank you for joining us on the programme. Good morning, Scott, and thank you for inviting me to the programme. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, and it's a pleasure for us having you with us as well, Claudine. Now, um, I've obviously outlined sort of very briefly for those listeners that might not be familiar with you, sort of the core of your work, but you're also the founder of the Taking Positive Steps Foundation, which sort of provides early intervention for children and young people who might be involved in antisocial behaviour and could be at risk of being drawn into crime. So I think it would be good to kind of talk about um, a little more of your work within that organisation, if that's okay, just to start with. Okay, so I'm one of the directors of Taking Positive Steps Foundation, um, a foundation that was set up in 2017, I believe. Our main focus is to engage with children and young people who are either caught up in gang, unlawful group association, um, those who are on the periphery of being excluded from school or have already been excluded from schools, those who are in alternative education provisions, and also their family. Because when we look at children who are and young people who are caught up in these situations, it's not just about them, but it's also about how it impacts on the wider family. So we then... Um, broaden our net by looking to see how we can support the families, whether it be a two-parent family or a single family and their siblings. So the net that we cast is quite wide. We also do, um, we run a training program in um, some of our high security prisons for those who um, may have committed a crime and are now incarcerated for those crimes, as we say, they might have been what the media call gang-affiliated crimes, and also training around um, social workers and how social workers engage with what is often described as hard-to-reach children, young people and families. Mm. So we kind of provide a holistic service which kind of engages with children, young people, families from education upwards, um, nursery age upwards. Nursery age, you may say, oh, but we don't have nursery age children caught up in those things. So when I say nursery age, I'm talking about the provision of nursery services that help uh, families out, that keeps them in employment. Yeah, certainly makes sense from my perspective. And there is a sort of a real acknowledgement, isn't there, from people that are working within sort of children and young people's services at the moment, that the system that's currently out there and the different kind of services there are, it is quite fragmented, isn't it? So it's uh, very much kind of that wide net that you have cast that you talked about there. You could argue that that's needed. And um, even um, yourselves, um, you recently published a report, didn't you? Um, the eponymous Dubry report, which sort of looked at sort of how families and sort of um, engagement were impacted by the fact that the system is as fragmented as it is. So what sort of things did sort of that uncover, if we just touch on that for a moment? 
Yes, yeah, so as you said, the Juba report is out there. It, it, it's doing its thing. It's, it's getting into the various organization institutions and it's creating a lot of conversation. But we want more than just conversation. We actually want that to be um, actions. So what it was, the Juba report um, came out of the death of a young man that we worked with. And when we looked back at his life, what we looked back at was the various institutions that were engaged with him mm. before his death and how we say they failed him. So if we took school, for instance, he was constantly running late to school. He constantly failed to hand in his homework. He failed to attend detentions, which was the punishment for not handing in your homework or the punishment for being late for school. But nobody stopped to look at, well, why is this child displaying these behaviours? Why, why, why is it that he's finding it challenging to get to school on time? Why is it he's finding it challenging to do his homework? And although I spoke to a lot of teachers when I was doing that piece of research, you know, they said, well, then Claudine, I think it's a bit about the fact that we're here as teachers. We're here to deliver an education. We don't necessarily look at the welfare of a child. Well, if you're mm. not going to look at the child in its holistic form, then how can we expect to deliver education? So. I'm not knocking teachers because right now I think teachers have a really hard job. Our our classroom numbers have increased and increased over the years. So we've gone from having something like 20, 22, 25 children in the class to having 30 and sometimes 32 children in the class. So their work is really challenging, but we can't remove it from the fact that the children spend 95% of their time in the education environment. So we've got to be able to stop and take a look at what's going on. Now, if we go back to primary school education where we have one teacher a year, so that teacher really gets to know that child. It's very different when they go on to senior school mm. because then we have something like 10 teachers and these children are constantly moving around the school throughout the learning day. So does that teacher really have time to get to know that child? For me, the answer is no. So that was the, the school. And then we looked at social services. There was a, a time when children's services were alerted about this family. And they went in and they did a very quick um, assessment of the family and their family needs. And they chalked it down to, oh, no, the family is actually okay. Whereas the family weren't okay, but the family were actually afraid to stay actually we're struggling here or actually we're in a crisis because mum feared her children being removed by social services. Now, I think that's a bit of a double-edged sword if we look at it that way because recently we've had a number of children, babies who have died in our community who have been failed by social services but then the flip side of it is we've got social services going in and saying, no, everything's actually okay and going away. So being a ex-social worker also, I actually appreciate the struggles that they have. 
So as you said, it, you know, and that's just two of the services that we looked at. You know, we looked at the engagement of the police. We looked at the engagement of youth services, mental health services. And it went right across the board of the institutions who I say are actually fractured. And we're fractured because, you know, there's no joint up working. We're fractured because everybody's kind of running around paying attention to their own business. And where's the community? The community is so fragmented that nobody's paying attention to anything else that's happening next door. Mm. We've got so many children that are being groomed and brought into a different world, but parents are not seeing it or parents are kind of busy or parents are not informed enough about what this actually means that there's so many pieces to this puzzle, but we need to take a stop and say, okay, how can we, take it all apart and put it back together piece by piece to make sure that all the systems who are out there who are supposed to be child and family focused are actually doing what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, I can certainly see where you're coming from there. And do you think that part of the problem is the fact that, you know, we call these institutions, do we think that it's because they're kind of overly institutionalised? So basically there's so many kind of layers of procedure and bureaucracy that obviously social workers, teachers have to adhere to, that maybe, you know, the time isn't there for them to kind of focus on these kind of key signs that they should be seeing? Well, as I said before, it is my impression that because we have so many layers to get through in order for individuals to get a service, that individuals are often overpassed. Um, you know, if we look at children's services, we've got our social workers who will go and do an assessment and then they will have to report that back to their manager and then the management will take it to a discussion and panel and team meeting to just find out whether or not you know they have met the criteria or the standards before a service is being offered now by the time we've done that often, unless it's a family who is in real crisis where we know we're going to go in and remove the children there's too many layers, there's too many obstacles, there's too many people at the helm who are the so-called decision makers that often we miss an opportunity and then what we end up doing is then paddling against the tide. We're not doing the preventative work, we're doing the reactionary work. Mm, yeah, I can certainly see where you're coming from from that perspective. So how do we actually go about kind of resolving that issue? Is it trying to kind of make the system, as we've talked about before, kind of less fragmented than it is? How do we really do that? I think that how we need to do that is we definitely need to take away some of the layers that are before us. It, we need to cut caseloads and, you know, I suppose, Cutting caseload isn't just about the institutions. It's also about manpower. It's also about resources. As I said, we've got so many good social workers who are leaving the profession because they're so overstretched, because they feel like they're no longer having an impact, because they feel like they're not able to make a change. We need to bring those people back in. We need to bring in new workers. We need to cut the caseloads 
we need to be a lot more considerate towards the workers who are in the field, you know, in order for them to be out there looking after the, the community, as it were, for them to be able to look after the mental and emotional well-being of the cases that come before us. We also have to stop and think about their mental and emotional well-being. And when they're so stretched and always under pressure and always trying to do the best and feeling as though they're not making a difference, we're not looking after their mental and emotional well-being. And that also contributes to what I call the fractured system. Yeah, so there presumably needs to be a lot more joined-up work between the different services, doesn't there? A lot more joined-up yeah. working. And, and, you know, I just use social work as a guidance and as an example. But we also have to look at um, teaching. You know, we're running down towards the six-week holiday for, for children and teachers. And... At this time of year, what we find is that we lose a lot of teachers who really just stayed on until the end of term so that they can get the children or their classes to the end of term. And then they, they've left the field. It's a lot of pressure all the way round. You know, we've got good police personnel who've said, well, actually, this is not what I signed up for. And they're leaving. You know, we've got the nurses who are also at the front line, who are also feeling the pressure, who are also feeling that they don't have the resources to make a difference, who are also feeling as though they're on a conveyor belt. You know, you've got a patient in and a patient out and there's no time to stop and really give care. It's a, all our institutions, they're suffering. The workforce is suffering. And in order to change the fractured system, we have to go back to the drawing board and we have to say, okay, how do we take this puzzle apart and how do we fit it back together so that all the pieces fit? And there's your joint up thinking and there's your mash teams. And as old people would say, yeah, but we've got the multi-agency mm. teams. How well are they working? Yeah, exactly right. It's all about just making sure that, as we've discussed already, thing the buck isn't just sort of being passed to different services, different services because of sort of budgetary constraints, isn't it? There's got to be a lot more joined at working on that side of things and consideration exactly. for the and real you know, impact. Exactly, we talk yeah. about budget constraints, but if we look at the police and we say, well, we don't have enough police on the streets, and we look at the youth services and we don't have in- enough youth workers and we don't have enough qualified youth workers and we don't have enough youth workers who are really dedicated to doing the job and to making a difference and we don't have enough budget that every time we have a murder on the street how much does it cost the public and we have to Mm. find the budget because the budget pays for the murder investigation the budget pays for the family support the budget pays to take the 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 crime through court but then we've got the undertakers and all the other little pieces around but then we find the budget so if we can find the budget then why can we not find the budget to do the prevention work and really that is what i'm about i'm about you know interacting with my my colleagues in government offices to do the preventative work to let's see how we can better spend budgets if budgets are tight, let's see how we can better spend them. And, you know, as we said earlier on 
in our conversation, sometimes making a change isn't always about budgets. It's about inviting the community and the people who feel disempowered to empower them to get involved with their community, to empower those people to go into schools and do some work with the children where, you know, the class teacher may be under pressure because I've got 30 mm. children. And yes, I may have a classroom assistant. So we've got two teachers in a class of 30, but then we might have two children with special needs. Mm. So the community can go in and help an hour a day, two hours a day, three hours a week to help that school along. It's empowering the community. It's empowering the people. It's about ensuring that everybody knows that we're all a part of this journey and how do we really stand up and be counted. Exactly. There's a role that we can all play, isn't there, in the uh, certainly the preventative side of things by sort of making that system more joined up and sort of functioning uh, more coherently. Um, one thing yeah. um, that I did want to ask as well, uh, Dame Claudine, just from your experience, is the fact that obviously prior to the last couple of years that we've had, we've known quite acutely the impact of not keeping our youth off the streets and sort of giving opportunities for them to be groomed by gangs and criminals, etc., um, but do you think that the impact of the lockdown and the sort of impact that that's had on sort of the mental health side of things, do you think that now that restrictions have lifted, that's almost kind of made the situation worse in a way as well? I wouldn't think, I wouldn't say that within the last couple of years, although we've kind of been in lockdown, been in isolation, that it has removed the element of grooming. Because grooming comes in many shapes and forms. Children are groomed on the PlayStations, on the gaming consoles right inside of their house. Children are groomed by their peers. Young people are groomed by their peers, by their school friends, by their neighbourhoods. So I wouldn't say that that actually went away. Because what we saw during lockdown was a lot of the young people that we work with still going missing. And you're thinking, hold on a minute, we're Mm. supposed to be in lockdown, we're supposed to be in isolation. Why are our young people still going missing? There was a mother who had um, posters going round of her 15-year-old son who was missing for six weeks during the lockdown. He was eventually found on one of the county lines. But why was it he was missing? He only went down the road to the shop and disappeared from the shop and was found miles out of his local area. So, you know, there is that misconception that during lockdown that the grooming kind of reduced and children stopped going missing. That's far from the case. And in terms of their mental well-being, I think that the mental well-being of children and young people who went through the lockdown is now going to be very high on the agenda because what I have seen is a lot of camps with the Children and Adolescents Mental Health Service saying that we're overstretched. We can't take any more children. There's a long waiting list. They're now providing satellite services of other organisations who can just come in and do the quick pieces of work or the easier pieces of work where you don't necessarily need 
ongoing counselling or you may not need medication or can you link into your GP just to see if they can hold on to that child, that young person, until we can get to them. So even that service is overstretched and a lot of young people are suffering because they can't get a service. And that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, we've seen already the impact of, you know, people being left waiting for vital services. And obviously, if the mental health services are going down the same route, then there's only the chance of further crisis developing as a result of this, isn't there? So it's something we've got to be very, very careful about. We're going to have further crisis that's going to develop. We've got children as young as six and seven and eight waiting to go into camps. And you think, but they're only little. They're still babies. Why are they needing a service? But what we saw during lockdown was children became very isolated. They became very detached. And although we talk about the crisis that may be going on in our education system, this is still somewhere where they go and they socialize and they meet friends and it is part of their network. And we took that away and a lot of them stayed at home. And if they didn't have siblings, then it was just them and mum and dad and that impacted and then what they would do was they would have a lesson online a day where they make done registration with the tutor and then the tutor would tell them what the work was for the day and then they'd be supposed to go away and do it and then come back at lunchtime and discuss the work well that in itself was very hard and very challenging and I remember during that time, I spoke to a lot of schools and said, well, this is actually not working. What we need is actually teachers online for the whole day, teaching a classroom. Although it's remotely, we need you there. It didn't happen in a lot of schools. And so that has impacted on a lot of children. And mentally, a lot of children didn't understand, well, why can't I go out? Why can't I go to the park? Why can't I go and see my friend? Why can't I go and see grandma? You know, why can't I go and see my cousins? And and just getting their head around that. And those are the little ones. But even when we go up to 9, 10, and 11, you know, it was like challenging. It was like they're going to finish school. School's broken up. And now when you go back, you're going on to a new school. But you haven't done that transition. You haven't said goodbye to the old friends. You haven't had the the school proms and the leaving parties but now you're going into a whole new environment and I actually don't know that environment I wasn't introduced to it and I'm going to have all these new friends and all these new teachers and that is another impact on their emotional and mental well-being and and then before they were in that we were then in another lockdown and so what we're going to see in the coming years is a lot of children who are going to be displaying behaviours that have actually began during the lockdown. The trauma began during the lockdown, but the traumatised behaviours is going to play itself out in many different ways in the community. It certainly is, and obviously given your speciality at taking positive steps and trying to you know, intervene in these sorts of behaviours, as it were, um, what are you expecting to have to deal with over the next few months and indeed years as that sort of impact starts to really manifest, do you feel? Well, what we have seen is we've got a lot of parents who are saying, my child is behaving in a way that I don't understand. My child is displaying behaviours that I don't understand. 
and even in schools, schools are saying, well, this little boy, we can't deal with his behaviour or you know, the aggression that he sees in the classroom or the way he interacts with his friends. That's behaviours that we're picking up. We've got more children who've been diagnosed with ADHD. Why have we got so many children now who have been given these various diagnoses? That's another thing that that the schools and the community are going to have to deal with. We've also got these children who've got these diagnoses, but they don't have an educational health or educational support plan. So there's not much that the schools can put in place around them because although CAMS have said this is why they're behaving like this, they don't quite meet the the spectrum for having an educational support plan because mm. they're at the lower end. So the schools are going to have to manage it as best as they can. But if you remember when I when we spoke um, earlier, I said but the schools are here to do teaching. They're here mm. to deliver education. They're not here to manage your behaviour. So what we see is a train that's going to run off of the rails because the systems aren't in place. And what we're trying to encourage schools to do is to have a couple more mentors in, especially in um, in our senior schools. Have more mentors in to deal with children who you see are running off the rails. So before we get to we can't manage that child's behaviour and actually we're going to exclude them and put them in an alternative education provision, mm. which is actually going to cost the borough more money. Let's invest that money in having mentors in who will work with these children, who will sit in the classroom, who will go to their, who will be their go-to person. Now, many of schools will listen to this um interview and said that actually including we have those people in place but you have them in place have you got enough of them in place are they qualified to be able to deal with the trauma of the lockdown the impact of COVID the impact of being isolated those young people who have been groomed it's a different kind of mentoring you can say I'm going to deal with the naughty child but why is the naughty child being naughty? What is at the root cause of their behaviour? And that's what Taking Positive Steps specialises in. We mm. go into schools, we go into different organisations, we do training around social work in engaging with children and young people who are being groomed, who are displaying these behaviours. But what is at the root cause of that behavior and when we understand the root cause of the behaviors now we can then move forward and the moving forward says what we're trying to do is reduce our exclusion numbers at the moment in the uk we've got 665,000 children between the ages of 5 and 16 who are excluded from mainstream education and in alternative education provisions. Now, that was a number that was quoted just before the lockdown. Now, if we take the trauma of the lockdown and all its impact and look at where it is going, that number that I've just quoted is going to get a lot higher because there are children who are not going to be able to fit or be comfortable in our in our mainstream schools 
system and then um they the schools who don't quite understand it or the schools who are here to deliver a service i.e education mm. they're gonna say but actually you're disturbing your class from learning you're disturbing that teacher from delivering a, a subject and so we can't have you here and as I said it doesn't make the school wrong because yes you and I know if we've got our children in that classroom and we've got one or two children who are disrupt in that class we're going to challenge that school as to what are you doing because that child is stopping my child from learning and so it should be but what we need to do is not penalise that child for whatever that root cause challenge is that mm. stops them being in that classroom or who's that stops them from doing their learning but we need to put services around them that is going to help them to learn that is going to help them to be in that education system and that's why i said we need more specialist mentors and that's the service or part of the service that is run by taking positive steps Mm. And that's needed, isn't it? Because um, otherwise we're going to be in such a terrible situation where we're so entrenched in this kind of institutionalised system the way that it is that when you do have a crisis like this and the services aren't there to support a child in need who is displaying those behaviours, they're basically excluded and then allowed to sort of see the situation run out of control simply because, oh, well, dealing with this child is above my pay grade or we don't have the budget to have someone to come in and deal with them. And it's a real shame, isn't it? And it is a real shame. And yes, sometimes it is above your pay grade, but it's not above the pay grade of your head teacher. And then, as you said, we, we send you into these alternative education provisions. The alternative education provision will cost the local authority twice the price that mm. it will cost to keep that child, young person, in our mainstream education system. So the budget that we're now going to use to keep you in that um alternative education provision why are we not dedicating it to putting support services into our mainstream system and then when we put these children and young people into our alternative education provision what we're doing we're still stacking the odds against them because we know that placing them into this alternative provision is basically a dumping ground it is it is an uh, environment for which those who are on on the streets who have criminal intentions know that that the eye has been taken off of that young person who is now in that alternative provision, and very quickly they will be groomed into criminal behaviour. So when they're now groomed into criminal behaviour, and they then begin to socialise with those who are displaying antisocial behaviour, unlawful group associations, then other institutions now come into play. So with the system the way it is and given the work that you are doing at taking positive steps on the ground, Dame Claudine, just before we wrap things up today, what changes do you want to see within the system to make sure that we're getting more support into mainstream education for children where it's needed to be preventative? And what are you sort of hoping, secondly, within your organisation to achieve over this sort of next 12 months, let's say? I would assume that it's all about bringing that exclusion number down as a first port of call. Yes, so 
what I would like to see, I would like to see local authorities and other institutions, government offices, collaborating more around reducing the number of exclusions. And that's not just having conversations about reducing the numbers, but that's actually doing the hard work, re, um, reducing the number of exclusions. So, for example, as I said, we can have more mentors within the school systems. I met with a head teacher last week, um, and we were talking about how he reduces or how he can begin to reduce the number of young people who are excluded from his school. My answer to him was straight away, if we looked at his registers, we could see the young people who he knew that within the next three to six months, if their behaviour or their attitude didn't change, that they would be excluded. Right, okay, if you gave those 10 20 students to take in positive steps, we would come in on a daily basis, even if it was for an hour, or on a weekly basis, two days a week, and we would do some work around those children and young people. But we would also roll that work out to doing some work in the community with them and some work in the family homes with them. Because oftentimes, as I said to you, we have to look at what the root causes are to their behaviours. Some of these root causes are coming from within the home. So then we have to address what is going on in the home to be able to change the behaviours of those children and young people. So that's the conversations that we want to have a lot more freely with my colleagues in government. We want to have more freely with my colleagues in education and the individual schools in order to reduce numbers. Our numbers are far too high in the UK of children being excluded. If we look at our colleagues across the waters, they don't have those numbers of children and young people excluded because they make it their mission to not exclude children, but to see how do we work with them to keep them in mainstream. Now, as I also said, not every child is cut out to be within that mainstream classroom. So what we do is we create satellite classrooms that we work with children and young people who can't work within those 30 numbers. We're working with you now in smaller numbers. You may be in a classroom that only has 10 children, but we've kept you within the main school environment. So then you're not placed elsewhere where you're accessible to those with criminal intentions. And so moving forward over the next 12 months, what Taking Positive Steps will be doing, we will be working a lot more with schools. We will be working a lot more with um, our alternative education providers. We're working a lot more with our colleagues in the Met Police and we're doing this work so we do training with our colleagues but we also show them how we can engage with these children and young people and that also is an important part of our work to be able to engage with these individuals, not go along as professionals, not go along and dictate to them what will happen or what they will do, but work with them 
that means giving them a voice, listening to what's going on for them or why they're behaving in this way. But also, as I said, trying to get to the root cause to then be able to provide a service which is then suitable for them, which in turn will reduce our numbers. So that's really going to be a lot of the work that um, Taking Positive Steps will be doing. As you said, we've recently published mm. a report, which is called the Juba Report. And if you read the Juba Report, it tells you the journey of the young man who his challenges began within the education system, within his home, with, within his peer groups. You know, so then we looked at we looked at the um, contextual safeguarding, but then we lost him anyway to the streets. But if we had done a lot more of the preventative work, we could have saved him. Exactly right. And it's significant food for thought, isn't it? And hopefully we do see sort of a real impact on this side of things in the uh, the future, because it is so, so important that we do get this right and stop this from happening. And uh, just for anyone tuning in as well, I mean, if you, you know, are personally affected by some of the issues that we have discussed today and you even want to look into more of uh, Taking Positive Steps work on this front, then you can visit Taking Positive Steps, that's all one word, dot org, dot UK. I believe that would be the best port of call, wouldn't it, uh, Dame Claudine, just to look into you a bit more? And that will be the best way to look into what we're doing a lot more. Or if they want to read the report, we mm. have now made it a public document, which is... Um, on Amazon, so they can go over to Amazon and they can get a copy of it for themselves. It is just called the Dewberry Report, and they can buy a copy of that and they can see the journey of the young man. They can see the data that was given, which is very up-to-date data that was used, and they can then see the solutions that we have given to begin to address the challenges of the topic we've just covered. Absolutely right. And it is important that we start to really look into that. And um, obviously for everybody uh, tuning in as well, um, if you, of course, would like to come on to the programme to discuss these issues or any issues relating to your organisation and your work, then just to remind you, you too can apply to be on the Leaders' Council podcast via leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Um, as for now, Dane Claudine, it's been a real pleasure welcoming you onto the programme to talk about taking positive steps, the Dubry Report and the work that you're doing. And I do wish you all the luck in the world in sort of having that um, impact that you really want to have on the ground continually because, like I say, we're seeing the situation exacerbate and we really need to get this right. Most definitely. Absolutely. And um, I think as we start to kind of see the fog lifting and we see what kind of trajectory we're taking with this, it'd be a real pleasure for me to perhaps even welcome you back onto the programme in future just to see uh, how things might be coming along and what more might need to be done at that point in time. I would be delighted to revisit. It would be my pleasure as well, Dame Claudine. Do take care and do stay safe with all still going on. And just a final word to all of our listeners, I do hope that you all thoroughly enjoyed the interview today with Dame Claudine Dewberry from Taking Positive Steps. Um, until next time, you've been listening to the Leaders' Council podcast with your host, Scott Challoner, today. Please do take care, everyone, and goodbye. <laughs>